Now, the rest of the book, we're going really quick. The chapters that follow, starting in chapter 35, are almost blatantly a repetition from everything we went through. So you read 32 through, um, sorry, you read chapter 26 through 31, and it's like you should make it this big and this big and this big and this big and da 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 And then you get to chapter 35, and it says the exact same thing, word for word. And you're like, okay, God, why would you repeat yourself? Why can't you say, and they did everything God said? Especially when paper is so important. Why? The main reason is this. As you're, now, we think, oh, my gosh, I just read this. Do I have to read this again? It was hard enough the first time to get through all this instruction. But part of it is, as you're reading all the little details, word by word by word, by word the difference is the first time God says, and build it like this. Not that exact phrase, but that idea. And then the second time it says, and they build it like this. And if you keep hearing that over and over and over again with all those minute details again, what it really does is pound into you, they literally obeyed and did it exactly the way that God did it. And so if there's any question of whether their tabernacle looked like the one that God built, it's exactly the same. They obeyed it. This is what scholars call command compliance. <coughs> the command is given, and then it's all repeated in their compliance, word for word, so that you know that when God says they did all that God said, he really literally means all. Because all does not mean all, all the time. All is oftentimes hyperbolic in the Bible and even our own language. And so it's very easy to say when all of Israel followed Jesus. No, they didn't. They weren't all there all the time listening to his teaching. But now with their total word-for-word repetition, you know that all means all. And that's the point. So that when you in Exodus, there's no doubt in your mind, they built exactly what God commanded them to build to every little detail. But the other thing that it does is it lets you know that there was some kind of real repentance here. And it's kind of like when you, your, your kid or your students just realize they've totally screwed up and you got really angry, and then you're all of a sudden you're like, okay, I want you to do this, and they're like, okay, okay. And they really want to like do it totally right to get on your good side. That's kind of what Israel is doing. And they've repented and they've come in. Now, what's interesting here is, this is cool. It says in chapter 37 through 38 that there were women who were appointed to serve in the tabernacle even to the time of Samuel. That is not mentioned in the first descriptions. We're told that the women are appointed. Now, what's really cool about this is, we, well, one, we have no idea what that means. This is a brief statement. And women were appointed to serve in the tabernacle. And then we get to Sam, 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we find out that there's women serving in the tabernacle going all the way back to this time period right here. Was that done by generations? Was that done by like birth? Was that like the Levites where you're appointed? Was that, we have no idea. The Bible is very vague on this. But what makes it very clear is a lot of times you think that it's just the Levite men. Now, it's just the Levite men or priests, but there are women who are appointed by God to serve in the tabernacle in some kind of fashion. We don't know what it is. And don't think women's work and men's work either, because half the things that the priests did would be what we would call women's work in the tabernacle, 
which I think that's totally bogus to even use those phrases, but just the way we often think it as Americans. So there's nothing to do with that either. But here's what's cool. The book begins with four women as the main characters obeying and serving God to the risk of their lives. And now the book ends with a specific mention of women serving in the tabernacle. And it's almost like the role of women in God's plan of redemption, saving Israel, and the role of women serving in the house of God become the bookends to the book of Exodus. And not literally the last thing that is mentioned, but in the last chapters, in the first chapters. And so this shows the importance of women, because a lot of times women aren't mentioned a whole lot in the Bible as much as men, mostly because that's the culture. And there's a certain sense that men have been appointed as the head. But God makes it very clear by, even though they're brief statements, they're so emphasized here and emphasized there, the way that he places them shows that they're very important to the role of God's redemption and serving God in his house. And without those women in the beginning, there would be no Israel to redeem and have a house. And so it's almost fitting that the women who made the house possible are now also able to serve in the house. So one year later, the tabernacle is built. And then you come to chapter 40, and it says the tabernacle was set up in chapter 40. And what happens? This glory of God enters it. The glory of God and the pillar of fire and cloud comes rushing in at the end of chapter 40, and it goes into the tabernacle with no hole in the ceiling, and rest inside the tabernacle. Now here's what's really cool. I think I already mentioned this, but one of the differences between the other nations and Israel is that God puts himself right in their midst. It's not way far away, like the tent of meeting. Notice that when they sin, God says, okay, I'm going to be like everybody else now, and I'm going to go way far away from you. And now you have to walk a really far distance to get to me. Or you have to climb a mountain to get me. So you're, you're climbing the mountain to get to God, and only Moses is allowed to do it. Then when they sin, he says, okay, I'll come with you, but I'm going to go way out there, and you're going to have to walk really far to get me. But those were not God's ideals, up or really far away. God's idea was this. He placed himself on the exact same horizontal level with them, and he placed them, himself right in the midst of them. When we get to Numbers, he's going to tell us exactly how these tents are all arranged around the tabernacle. And it's very important for you to understand that no other God has ever done this in the history of mankind. Now, I know you could say, well, there's technically no other gods, but it doesn't matter. Nobody has theology like that. And God literally dwells among them to set yourself up for John when it says the word dwelt tabernacled among men. And Hebrews says that Christ stands in our midst is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. There is no other God. And so here's the thing. God begins Exodus in chapter 3 by saying, I am with you. And Moses ends his ministry in Exodus by saying, I get that what makes us unique is that you are with us. And God ends Exodus by physically and literally being with them. And that is the character of God as well. And that's setting you up for everything that Christ is going to do and the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and everything that we have, that Christ 
is with us and in us and dwelling with us. Not way up there and not way far away, but Jesus says the kingdom of God is all around you and in your midst because I am here. And this is all foreshadow of that. But there is something slightly different. So chapter thirty or chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. But when then, when the cloud lifted up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on their journey. But if the cloud was not lifted up, then they would not journey further until the day it was lifted up. For the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, but by fire it would be at night, and plain view of all the house of Israel throughout the land and their journeys. Now, pay attention to what is here. It says the glory of God came on the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter it. Why? Now, it's not because the glory of God is so powerful, because remember, when the glory of God was on the mountain, was Moses able to enter it? Was Moses able to enter the glory of God to make his face glow? Was Moses allowed to enter the tent of meeting before the tabernacle was built and allowed to go into that? Yes. But all of a sudden the glory of God comes down the tabernacle and he's not allowed to enter. He's not able to enter. What has changed? The tent of meeting was a place for Moses to encounter God. The nation of Israel was not allowed into that tent. This is the national house of God. This is where the whole nation has access to God. So by Moses entering this tabernacle, he's not going as an individual. He's going as a representative of the nation. Now what's interesting is, will the priests be allowed to enter the tabernacle? Yes. But Moses is not. So you need to understand the context. That's abnormal. This has nothing to do with people not able to enter the glory of God because the priests are all going to be able to do it. And Moses has been doing it, but they can't now. And it says that God spoke to Moses from the tabernacle when we get to Leviticus. But when we get to Numbers, it says that Moses, God spoke to Moses from in the tabernacle. Moses goes into the tabernacle and God speaks to him. Now, you have to understand that Exodus is ending with Moses not able to go in the tabernacle. But Numbers is going to begin with Moses able to go in the tabernacle. Because Israel has sinned against God with the golden calf. And as, Moses, as Israel's representative, Moses is now defiled by Israel's sin. And he can't represent them by going to the tabernacle. And none of the priests are allowed to go in. The tabernacle has been built. God is in it but they're defiled. They're completely defiled. They have been forgiven of their sins. Remember the golden the altar, the bronze altar, removed their guilt of sin, but did it remove their defilement? No. You may be declared not guilty, but if you're still a defiled sinner, you cannot enter God's presence. He may not kill you, but you cannot enter it. And so that is the entire book of Leviticus. The first half of Leviticus is going to be God explaining how do you become pure. In chapter 16, the climax, God is going to say, now purify the tabernacle. 
And then Numbers begins, and they're able to enter the tabernacle. And so you have to realize that what Moses accomplished for Israel was the removal of their legal guilt before God to not die. But they're not allowed to dwell with God until their defilement of sin is removed. And that allows them to enter the tabernacle. And that's huge. Because you and I have been legally declared not guilty by God. And those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation anymore. But you and I are getting a little bit of Christ entering our presence because the blood of Christ has purified us. But we're not completely purified because we keep sinning. So we're not allowed to enter that heavenly tabernacle until we are completely purified. And so that's what the book of Leviticus says. So you need to understand, Genesis ends. And you're like, okay, God has chosen this family to bless and to be a blessing to the world. And so he gives them four promises. Personal blessings, a great nation, land, and the world will be blessed through you. When you end Genesis, it ends, has the family of Abraham been personally blessed by God? Yes. Have, has God used them to be a blessing to the world? Yes. Not in the full extent of what we think as Jesus Christ, but to a certain extent. But Genesis ends on this huge negative note that they're not in the land. Not only do, does Abraham only have a plot of land that he's bought, and it's only a cemetery for dead people, but they're not even in the land anymore because they're in Egypt. And they're not a great nation because there's only 70 of them. And so Genesis ends on this huge negative note that God has been incredibly good and faithful to them, and he's been with them, and there's no doubt of that, but his promises are not fulfilled. They don't have that land, and they don't have that great nation. And so Genesis ends on a huge negative note. Well, when you get to Exodus, you find out they have become a great nation, or they're on their way to becoming a great nation. And you see that develop more and more and more. But when you get to the end of Exodus, are they in the land? So that negative note still has not been dealt with. But what's even worse is God throws another negative note in, they cannot go into the tabernacle. And so Exodus ends on two negative notes, just like Genesis. They are not in the land, and they're not even allowed to go into the tabernacle that God built. And that's why each one of these books, Exodus begins with, and, because it's a continuation of Genesis. And when we get to Leviticus, the first word of Leviticus is going to be, and, because the story is not over with. Does that make sense? So I wish I could have ended the book of Exodus on a really positive note, but... I'm not the author. <laughs> but that's important. God doesn't leave you on feel-good, happy-go-lucky stories. It's more like an Asian-Chinese film. They don't always end on a positive note, even though it was a good journey. So the book of Exodus began with Israel enslaved by a foreign nation of Egypt. But despite that slavery, despite that oppression, despite the systematic attempt of Pharaoh to eliminate them and reduce their population, God continues to bless them and allows them to increase greatly in number, fulfilling his promises of them to become a great nation, to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill the earth. And so in the beginning, God shows that he is faithful to them, even in the midst of their slavery, even in the midst of their oppression, and even in the midst as they themselves begin to worship the gods of Egypt. 
It is into that scenario that God chooses Moses and steps in their lives and delivers them from Egypt, from their oppression, from their slavery, from their servanthood to Pharaoh. And an incredible display of his power, of his might, of his love, of his deliverance, he leads them out of Egypt. But remember, the major theme here is not just their freedom from servanthood and slavery, but that they're going to be delivered into a new kind of servanthood and bondage, a life of worship to Yahweh. They were bought by Yahweh. He lifted them up on eagles' wings. He brought them out, no other God, and therefore they owe him, and their lives belong to him. And so he delivers them from their slavery in Egypt to an evil, oppressive slave master into their slavery to him and a covenant relationship with a loving God who saved them when nobody else would. But he has expectations from them. And so at Mount Sinai, he begins to reveal his expectations to them through his law, making it very clear that if they obey him, he will bless them. But if they don't obey him, he will not bless them. And that is the justice of God. But Israel, continuing the theme from Genesis, constantly fails. They grumble, they complain, they're constantly accusing God falsely. They have completely missed who this God is. They completely failed to fall in love with him. And in their, that, they chose to do what they wanted to and to follow their own heart ultimately leading to the golden calf. And in the golden calf, they erected an idol, giving it credit for their salvation, and they began to worship it. But yet the second thing that God demonstrates greatly is his amazing act of compassion forgiveness. Though he justly had every right to punish them and wipe them out, he chooses to forgive them by a simple prayer of Moses on their behalf. And God restores them to who they were, and he allows them to continue to build the tabernacle, and he allows them to enter the tabernacle. And so this is the character of God in the book of Exodus, is a God who wants to draw near to them and desires that they draw near to him. And he's willing to save them, to conquer their enemies, to dwell with them, to forgive them, to show them mercy in order to have that relationship. And so the book of Exodus ends with still unfulfilled promises. They're not in the land. And there's this negative note that they can't enter the tabernacle yet because of their sin with the golden calf. But it also ends with an incredible revelation of who God is in this character as a loving, powerful God who will do anything to save, deliver, redeem his people and even forgive them and restore them when they violate his covenant. Was that beneficial? Does that change your perspective in Exodus? Yahweh, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you for the amazing God that you are. I thank you that you have provided a means of us coming to you, both in the First Testament and Second Testament. And we just praise you that the means that you have provided is superior to that of the First Testament. And we thank you that we live in a time that we can reap the benefits of Christ and the Holy Spirit in a way that so many other people did not get the benefit in the past. And so many people, if they only knew what was available to them, would love to benefit. Let our lives be an example of that so that we can be a blessing to the world and they can experience the same.
In Jesus' name, amen.